We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Huckleberry Finn from the novel The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. To help out with the discussion, I'm joined by returning guest Henry Dorowski. Hello. Welcome back, Henry. Happy to be here. <laughs> uh, for anyone who is not familiar, Huckleberry Finn is an 1884 novel by Mark Twain, and it tells the story of Huckleberry Finn and an escaped slave named Jim floating down the Mississippi River on a raft, and they have some adventures along the way. Morals are learned, lessons are taught. Henry, you asked to talk about Huckleberry Finn on the podcast. Why is this the text you wanted to make sure we touched on? Um, I was reading it uh, in school at the time, and I just was enjoying it quite a bit and i'd only ever talked about movies so i wanted to change it up a little bit and talk about a book <laughs> well this is a good one i think it's one that we've ha- you know mentioned that oh we need to do that sometime mm-hmm. it is a novel that i read several times in uh you know as a kid or as an adolescent i know i also read it in school and i read it for one class in college and i was very happy to revisit it for this episode of the podcast turns out mark twain is a good writer i don't know if you knew that <laughs> now i do <laughs> have you read any other mark twain besides huckleberry um Finn? no but... no tom sawyer no tom sawyer okay well uh this is a sequel to yes, I, I, tom sawyer yes. it's made pretty clear in the first paragraph yeah, I think Huckleberry Finn says this isn't going to make any sense if you haven't gone and read Tom Sawyer, but it apparently does make sense because you never read Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Um, Mark Twain is a very big deal. That's all I put down in the trivia <laughs> in terms of American literary history and also American humor. Uh, still, the the biggest prize for American humor that's given out is called the Mark Twain Award, um, and he was so uh, significant a figure that you can find basically all of the the um, literary figures from the 20th century say, oh, it all goes back to Mark Twain. Like, that's what inspired yeah. their work. That's what um, set American literature on the course that it's on. Uh, it's he, He's one of those seminal figures. Like, if you're going to have debates about the great American authors, he is going to be in the Mount Rushmore of four people that get mentioned <laughs> right yeah. there. Yeah. Um, this book, Huckleberry Finn, has been let's say, controversial <laughs> since its publication and remains to this day one of the most contested books in the American library system. So every year, the ALA, the American Library Association, puts out a list of books that they've been requested to ban from public libraries. And Huckleberry Finn is almost always in the top 10 on the list, primarily for modern audiences because of the rampant use of the N-word. It 
sometimes is like a dozen times on a page. Yeah. <laughs> the, the N-word is going to show up. Uh, Twain was a regionalist writer. He worked hard to capture vernacular speech. And for the period and location in which he is writing about, let's just say an awful lot of the, uh, the N-word being used would have been common mm-hmm. uh, in, in that time. So this is a, a post-Civil War novel like he's writing this in a post civil war setting but it's a pre civil war uh novel mm-hmm. um that um is engaging with race issues in America and right. it turns out the use of the n word would have been accurate uh but it definitely makes modern audiences uncomfortable yeah i think we shouldn't be comfortable with that so i'm fine mm-hmm. with that discomfort but uh, it's so uncomfortable that sometimes uh teachers avoid teaching it or as we said parents ask them to be removed from libraries mm-hmm. um largely because of of that issue i remember as a kid reading a version i can't remember if it was the one i was assigned from school but it had n dash 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 like that's yeah. all i had for every use of the n word like they just had removed it that way i know there's a version out there that replaces every use of the n word with the word slave mm-hmm. Um, so there's been some ways to try and negotiate that. I think you said that in your class discussions, anytime that it would have been the N-word, you uh, you just use the word slave. Is that yeah, right? so the, the teacher asked. And yeah, she had this whole, whenever you like introduce the text, you blah, blah. And then she had to do this extra thing, you know. You know, this has the N-word, blah, blah. In class, let's just say slave. And, you know, it's reflective of the times and, you know, all that. Yeah. Um, there have been many adaptations of this novel, not many of them very well received by fans or critics. Mm. I don't think there's been the classic definitive adaptation of Huckleberry Finn. No. That's been done. Um, looking on Wikipedia, I saw 17 different adaptations of, of it or films that were inspired by it. Maybe we were doing some sort of twist, mm. twist on it. Um, there's also a Japanese anime from 1976 and a different Japanese anime adaptation from 1994. Both of those, I think, were 26 episodes I saw um, uh, in their listing. There's a Broadway musical called Big River. Uh, there was also a manga adaptation. And during an elevator pitch special episode of the Protagonist podcast, I just had written down the note, Huck and Jim in space, and somehow that became one that Andrew and Todd latched onto, and I think we workshopped for a little bit. <laughs> um, but that's all I'd written down. <laughs> it's like, I don't really have what this is going to be. Um, several authors have told stories about different characters from the story, including there's a novel about um, Pap, Huck's oh, yeah. dad. There's also a novel about Jim's wife, who is mentioned, but never seen in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are two different books that are supposed to be sequels about Huck and Jim going out west. And having cowboy adventures. So, uh, these characters resonate, uh, even with other storytellers. Like I said, um, like I think Hemingway, what was the quote from Hemingway you had mentioned before? Oh, he said, um, all American fiction derives from Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, but it, it, besides that, like, storytellers want to do more with Huck, yeah. and, Huck and Jim. Like, they're, they're characters that seem so alive and vibrant, I think, mm-hmm. that people um, want more stories with them. Uh, before we move on to the plot summary of this, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and talk about the books we've been reading and also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office game. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now, the full summary of Huckleberry Finn. Picking up where Tom Sawyer left off, Huck is now rich. So at the end of that novel, they inherited uh, a treasure, a buried treasure. (laughs) Um, It's like classic kid wish fulfillment fantasy. Um, And 
he has been somewhat adopted by Widow Douglas and her sister, Miss Watson. Huck, who had lived a fairly vagrant lifestyle with his alcoholic and abusive father, is not taking to the civilized lifestyle very well. Tom Sawyer wants to start a gang of robbers, and Huck and other boys from their town are all in, but Tom tells Huck that he has to live a respectable life with Widow Douglas and Miss Watson if he's going to be a robber. I love that logic, and it is completely consistent with Tom Sawyer <laughs> to have that kind of mindset. Um, the gang attempts a few robberies of sorts, which is mostly just them running around yelling. Yeah. Uh, but they don't really do anything much. Huck hears that his father's in town and he runs to find Judge Thatcher, who is in charge of Huck's money. And he begs Thatcher to take all of his money. And eventually, after lots of begging, Thatcher agrees, but he's a good man and clearly isn't actually going to take it. He just doesn't quite understand what Huck needs the money mm. out of his name for. Then Huck's father, called Pap, finds Huck and demands custody of him and Huck's money that he has heard about. And that turns out to be what Huck was, was doing and Thatcher understands now what's going on. The widow Douglas and Judge Thatcher try to keep custody of Huck, but another judge says that caring for his son could help to reform Pap. Pap eventually takes Huck and goes to a rundown cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And every time Pap leaves to go get drunk, he locks Huck inside the cabin. One time Huck is there for three days with no food and he gets really desperate and he eventually breaks out. And then Huck kills a pig and drags it around, leaving blood smears. And he tears out some of his own hair to make it look like he's been murdered. Then Huck goes to live on an island in the Mississippi uh, to, River to hide out, hoping that his father will be blamed for his murder. On the island, Huck finds Jim, who was Miss Watson's slave. Jim heard that Miss Watson was going to sell him to a plantation where he'd be separated from his wife and kids and be beaten regularly, so he ran away. One night, there's a huge storm that sends all kinds of debris down the river. They see a raft uh, that they're able to snag. They also see an entire house floating down the river. They use the raft to go to the house where they get some supplies and see a dead man in a room, so Jim won't let Huck go look closely. To find out what's going on back home, Huck puts on some girls' uh, clothes that they found in the house, and he walks towards town. He sees a previously abandoned house, now has someone living there, and he knocks on the door, hoping to hear gossip. He finds out that at first, Huck's dad was suspected of murdering Huck, but then, when Jim ran away that same night, all the suspicion fell on him. Now there's a large reward for Jim, and the lady who's telling the story has seen smoke from the island where Huck and Jim are hiding out, and is sending her husband to search it that night. Huck runs back and tells Jim they need to leave immediately, and they grab their supplies and start floating down the river on the raft. They plan to leave the river when it meets the mouth of the Ohio River, and then they want to take steamboats to go to free states. Though Huck does feel guilty about helping Jim run away from Miss Watson, because she owns him fair and square. During the stormy night, during a stormy night, they come across a wrecked steamboat, and Huck wants to go on to explore for more supplies. They find uh, several robbers very much alive, one of whom is tied up and sounds like he's about to be killed by the other two. Huck steals their loot and cuts their boat free. Then he finds a watchman on the shore and makes up a story so that authorities will go search the wreck for survivors and capture those robbers. Um... Soon, they encounter another group of men, and while Jim is hiding uh, in a covering on the raft, Huck uh, hears that they're hunting for an escaped slave, and they uh, want to know what's going on with Huck and the raft, and Huck considers revealing Jim because he is Miss Watson's prop property, but then he lies and pretends that it is just his father, but his father's suffering from smallpox on the raft, and he's hoping the men will help him to go get medicine, but the men instead give him some money and refuse to get any closer and tell him to float on down the river <laughs> and get help somewhere else. Uh, it is super foggy and they miss the mouth of the Ohio, uh, Ohio River and their raft is 
is run over by a steamboat, and Huck and Jim are separated, floating down the river. Huck eventually ends up being taken in by a wealthy family called the Grangerfords. All seems idyllic until Huck learns that they, this family is in a blood feud with another nearby family, the Shepherdsons. Huck ends up helping a Grangerford, or Grangerford, I've heard it both ways, nice. I don't know yeah. which one it is supposed to be. But he helps uh, a Grangerford daughter run off with a Shepherdson uh, boy, and this causes a fight in which several people are killed. Jim had met some of the Grangerford slaves and knew Huck was alright, but didn't contact him right away in case he could have a good life there. But now Huck is back on the run with Jim, who had recovered most of their raft uh, after it was uh, hit by the steamboat. They rescue a pair of men who are being chased by a group of armed men. One of the men claims to be a duke, and then the other claims to be a lost heir to the French throne, and therefore a king, and they are both very clearly con men. Though, as Huck says at one point, he learned from Pap that you just let this kind of man be. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't call him out on it. <laughs> That's how mm -hmm. Huck learned to survive with his father, is basically just accept the lies, even if you know they're lies, and carry on. As they are powerless to tell... Um, these two white adults to leave them alone. Huck and Jim put up with their swindling and tomfoolery. To make them seem less suspicious, they portray themselves as a group of men returning a captured runaway slave, and and perhaps later, perhaps a bit excessively, they paint Jim all blue and post a sign saying that he is a sick Arab in, in order that, uh, that he doesn't have to be tied up on their on their raft uh, every day. So when they're going to towns, they always yeah. leave Jim tied up so that if anyone comes and finds him, he says, I've been captured, mm -hmm. and some other men have have claimed me. At one town, the swindlers advertise a three-night engagement of a play called The Royal Nonsuch, which is supposedly some Shakespeare fair, but ends up being just a few minutes worth of the king behaving like an animal naked while painted all sorts of different colors. Um, and the goal in this con is that on the first night, everyone who's there feels stupid, but doesn't want to be the only stupid, stupid yeah. people in town. So they go out and talk up the... the um, the play so that everyone else in town will go see it and then everyone else in town feels stupid and then they everyone in town pays on the third night so that they can throw rubbish <laughs> at the king yeah. but by then uh on that third night they they leave as soon as they get to the box office money um Huck and Jim know that these con men are up to no good, but because of their situation, they're kind of stuck with them on their raft. The afternoon preceding a performance, a drunk called Boggs is shot down by a gentleman called Colonel Sherburn, and a lynch mob retaliates. Sherburn disperses the mob through a defiant speech in which he describes how true lynching should be done. Um... And uh, by the third night of the Royal Nunsuch, the town has caught onto the scam, and the swindlers get out of town before they're pelted with rotten vegetables. In the next town, they come across the con men impersonate the brother brothers of Peter Wilkes, a wealthy man who had recently died. And they're doing this because they hear that there's an inheritance for his brothers who had been in England. Huck decides that Wilkes' three orphaned nieces, who have been kind to Huck, should not be treated so uh, evilly. So he attempts to steal them back their inheritance, and in a desperate moment is forced to hide it in Wilkes's coffin, which then is buried the next day. The two real brothers arrive and everyone falls into confusion. The townspeople say that they will attempt to determine who the real brothers are by digging up the coffin because uh, they ask, like, what is the tattoo that he has on his chest? Yeah. And uh, the king tells a lie about it being a, a light blue arrow. And then one of the real brothers says something else. And then everyone's like, well, I never saw a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> and, and both of them are like, well, it was a really small tattoo. You might have missed it. And so like, well, let's dig up the body and find out. <laughs> Um, while they're digging up the coffin, Huck runs away to the raft, hoping to never see the two villains again. When suddenly they return, Huck gets away a second time. Um, and, uh, he finds out that, uh, the two con men sold Jim to a family with the intention of returning him for a reward. And, um, 
Huck then has this moment of debate, and it's it's like the moral center of the story, where he, like this whole time he's actually been feeling guilty about having a runaway slave with him, uh, and whether he should return him or not. And he says, "Well, if I if I break the law by helping Jim stay free, I'm going to hell because this is the moral right thing is to obey the law and allow Jim to be a slave." And then he says, "All right, then I'm going to hell." And he pledges himself that uh, pledges that he's going to go free Jim. And that moment of saying, all right, I'll go to hell is kind of Huck's actual like moral change of character, change of character where he becomes a better person <laughs> by yeah. thinking uh, I'm going to break the law in order to save Jim. Huck learns that Jim has been sold to the Phelpses. Their nephew, a man named Tom, is expected the same time Huck arrives. And so when Huck shows up trying to find out information about where Jim is, he's mistaken for Tom and welcomed into their home. And um, it's uh, Tom's aunt is the is the one. Uh, that's asking him all these questions about his family and, and Huck's like, I don't, like, I'm good at lying. <laughs> like, yeah. I can get out of a lot of situations, but they're asking for specifics and I can't do that. And so he's not sure what he needs to do. But then he hears that the Tom he's supposed to be is Tom Sawyer. And he's like, oh, I can lie about Tom Sawyer yeah. all day long. <laughs> so, um, after he tells all the stories that he has about Tom Sawyer pretending to be Tom, mm -hmm. uh, he goes down the road and f sees Tom actually on the way. And he tells him what's going on, and Tom agrees to join in on the scheme. So Tom is going to prepare uh, pretend to be um, Tom's brother. Yeah. Kid <laughs> uh, brother. Kid brother who followed Tom on uh -huh. this trip uh, to his sea family. Meanwhile, Jim uh, has exposed the Duke and the King to the Phelps family. And the uh, the Duke and the King have been tarred and feathered and written out of town on a rail. Because um, all of their um, schemes from previous cities mm -hmm. uh, have, caught been, up to them. have caught up to them. Uh, now, Jim could simply be taken out of the shed that he's being held in. Because Huck and Tom uh, are able to get access and realize if we just lift up the bed. Yeah. He's he can walk out. <laughs> He'll still be dragging the chain, but he can walk on, out. And we could pretty simply file this chain off of him after that. So already they could really basically walk out at any point. But Tom wants to devise this elaborate escape plan involving secret messages, snakes in a shed, a rope ladder cooked into Jim's food, a hidden tunnel that they dig out, even though they can just walk in and out of the shed whenever yeah. they want, uh, and other ridiculous elements from adventure books that he has read. This includes an anonymous note sent to the Phelps family, which warns them that uh, evil men are going to try and free the slave <laughs> that they, they've caught. Um, and uh, Tom just basically wants this to be as hard as possible. And so during the actual night that they've planned the escape, Tom is shot in the leg because of all the warnings that they sent yeah. the family. <laughs> and uh, Jim stays with Tom Sawyer instead of continuing to escape. Jim is arrested um, and returned by the Phelps' doctor that fixes up uh, Tom. Uh, Tom's Aunt Polly arrives and reveals everyone's true identities. So all all this like ridiculous deck of cards, you know, stack of cards that they've built right. up of all of their, their lies it comes tumbling down immediately. It is revealed that Miss Watson died two months ago, and in her will, she freed Jim. So Jim was free the whole time, and Tom actually knew this, mm. and actually let Jim stay chained up so that he could make this insane escape plan, mm. and actually like lead to full violence in which Tom gets shot, uh, even though they could have freed him uh, from Huck's point of view, uh, and run away, or with Tom's actual knowledge that he was legitimately and legally a free man. Um, but Tom wanted to have that adventure. Jim tells Huck that his father is dead. He died um, 
in that floating house when Jim wouldn't yeah. let Huck see the body. Jim saw that it was Huck's dad, but didn't want to tell him because he didn't know how, how Huck would take it. Um, Sally, the mother of the Phelps family, offers to take care of Huck. However, he intends to trek out west. The last lines of the book read, On Sally, she's going to adopt and civilize me, and I can't stand it. I've been there before. The end. So, this is a very episodic novel uh, framed around Huck and Jim floating down the river, but then we get these, like, little mini-adventures, and then they float farther down. And there's these mini-adventures mm-hmm. that float far and as they float farther down. Let's start with, are there any of those that don't work as well for you? Where you come upon it, in, uh, like, in a reread, or even when you're reading it, you're like, I'm ready for the next next stage of this to happen. Um, I think... They're they're all very entertaining, but the process are is sort of this like they go, they get into a town, they get in some trouble that involves Huck doing a bit of deceiving and lying and making up something, and he goes blah, blah blah, you know, just keeps going. I think in that sense it's quite a bit repetitive, but I think they're they're so entertaining. I I don't really find fault in them. Like the whole time I was reading, and I was just having a blast. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, on this most recent, uh, well, I was listening to it. Mm-hmm. Uh. When we got to the very clear, like, Hatfield and McCoy analog of these feuding families, I was kind of yeah. like, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Hatfield and McCoy, um, wh- what is this adding? And th- But then I started to think about it, like, um, uh, Twain is writing this in the late 1800s, 20 plus years after the Civil War has ended, and a lot of it is dealing with prejudice in America in regards to race. Right. And I think that's an important episode to say, prejudice isn't just a race race issue <laughs> yeah like um unthinking hatred of someone else because of who they are can infect anyone and destroy lives like literally right. end lives but also destroy families and they uh, said um the, the going off of that that the family feud had gone on so long that they didn't even remember the reason <laughs> or the origin of why they were fighting in the first place and it's just it's so nonsensical um yeah yeah and, and i think that's meant to like also clearly connect with the prejudice that is driving Jim's existence right. and, and the whole idea of slavery and this um, sense of superiority and hatred of the other. But it's, it's showing it in this non-racial sense to just point out, I think again, the, mm-hmm. the stupidity of that level right. of, of prejudice that, that or bias that can exist um, within these people. And then the other one, like I, I really quite enjoy the Duke and King chapters. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> um, and, they're awful characters, but you kind of enjoy seeing them in their awfulness and mm. their pomposity uh, that you and Huck are seeing right through, and it just makes them seem more foolish, um, even as they think they're putting on like this grandiose display of intellect yeah. and cleverness. Um, you see the the foolishness the whole time, and you really enjoy like the comeuppance when it comes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they 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 have fully earned it by by that point. Um, but the finale when tom is making all of these insanely convoluted plans to free jim tom sawyer gets very tedious yes <laughs> in, extremely in that finale where um even before you find out that he knows jim is a free man you're like come on tom <laughs> this you're going a little bit far um and yet i was thinking about that in this most recent my most recent engagement with the novel like why why is this there? <laughs> Besides to be funny. Besides, yes. It, it, yeah. Like, uh, it, there's funny, but it's also like, it maybe goes on a bit too long. Yeah. And it does end with Tom getting shot, uh, right. which is pretty significant comeuppance for uh-huh. having been involved in this plans. And I was thinking about like, why is there so much of this com- convoluted thinking that happens around this freedom and then ends in the violence. And 
in order to free a man who is free, yeah. who, sh- who should be free. Right. And I kind of thought, oh, I think Mark Twain said something about the Civil War <laughs> in American history, that there was a very long convoluted path to freeing people who should be free. Right. Uh, Under the very, like, same statutes, you know, that the count- the country was founded on. Yeah. And I think, you know, ties back to he had already been free and whatever. And Yeah. And it's being done in this um, – somewhat sardonic and sarcastic way that isn't mm. really saying what it's trying to say. But I, I really do feel like I was satisfied in making that realization that yeah. this, this is a commentary on um, the stupid lengths that had to be gone to to free people who should have been free from right. the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so in the end, some of the, the sections that maybe I was – I wasn't as keen on as I gave them a little thought. I, I started to like them even more. Yeah. I think there's always something in this book. Obviously, there's a reason they're classics. Because, well, the more you read into them and the things that seem superfluous, there's something there mm-hmm. that, you know, deserves to be talked about and discovered. Yeah. And um, even as I say, like, I found Tom Sawyer to become a little bit tedious. Like you, mm-hmm. like you noted, you still kind of have to laugh at, yeah. at him. Like, Mark Twain is a funny writer. There's, right. a, there's a level of wit and even um, – uh, just like a, a sarcastic vein mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the descriptions that uh, you can enjoy the presentation, even if like the actual plot that's happening in that moment, you're kind of like, <laughs> does this need to be happening right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, the presentation uh, and, and the the delivery of um, this this is told from Huck's point of view. Huck, Huck Finn is the narrator of this story. Yeah, and um, the he's the if I'm not mistaken, he's the narrator of a uh, Tom Sawyer also. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and there's a couple um, sequels that no one ever talks about. Uh, Written by Twain. Yeah, that oh. are um, more kind of poking fun at genres that had become popular in Twain's lifetime. Mm-hmm. One of, one of them is um, kind of poking fun at like Jules Verne's style, yeah. and another one is is poking fun at kind of the dime novel adventures that oh. had become popular. Uh, in that, well, and I think the the latter one of those it's called Tom Sawyer Detective, I think, mm. and it's a, kind of a spoof of Sherlock Holmes. And sounds and very uh, Quixote. Yes. Oh, and Quixote gets mentioned yeah. near the beginning of this uh, of this text. Like it is a very um, it, it, some of this feels postmodern before postmodernism was yes. like the movement of all literature, which is I think another reason why Hemingway is correct in pointing back and says like it all goes back to <laughs> to, to Twain. To, to Twain. Um, there's a lot of moves that would be adopted in later uh, literary movements mm-hmm. in American culture. Even though this one is seems firmly embedded in a movement of the time, which was called regionalism, about that like accurate vernacular yeah, portrayal of life in these different regions of the country as the country was healing after the Civil War, and there's like a lot of questions of, like how the other people live, <laughs> like in these mm-hmm. other sections of the country, and there was a lot of movement to give voice to these accurate portrayals of the day to day life and speech patterns and customs of these different regions of the country, mm-hmm. and Mark Twain is often grouped within that because um, he was a travelogue writer, he wrote for newspapers. He went around the country and tried to give accurate portrayals of what was there, mm-hmm. but always with this kind of sardonic wit um, layered within it. And then, so Huckleberry Finn does fit within that mold, but I right. think it's also doing some of these other things that we don't mm-hmm. always think of. And it sets the, the standard for you know the rest of the course of American lit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of start out with like, what are there sections that don't work as well? What about what are your favorite sections of the novel? Then um, I really like the the very beginning um, and his introduction, sort of and. I think there's some great stuff there about um, hypocrisy where, um, you know, she's trying to learn him the Bible and she said she's reading um, Exodus, which is obviously about the liberation of a bunch of slaves uh-huh. while still maintaining slavery herself. Um, and I just – it's such a joy also, um, the whole thing and just reading it because it's obviously written in this dialect and the, 
spelling civilized with an S and Jim and his, the way, you know, it's just very detailed and intricate in that. And it's very enjoyable to read. I think it adds like that level of humor that you were talking about earlier. Um, I also, I quite enjoy the end, obviously, just because it's so crazy. It sort of like reminds me of um, The Prisoner of Azkaban, where it's just fun to watch it all kind of, all these intricate plot lines get built up and then in a moment they kind of all fall apart. In some ways it almost feels farcical, like both in terms of Tom Sawyer's elaborate plans that come tumbling down, but then also plot points that you hadn't like thought about for a while like on mm-hmm. Polly walk again <laughs> you know the, you know the, uh, and you find out some there's some stuff about letters that have been hinted at but never explained about mm-hmm. like letters not being sent proper or not being received properly things like mm-hmm. that um that all of a sudden matter about like on Polly hadn't been getting answers to questions she'd been writing about because Tom had been hiding letters from Aunt Polly because he didn't want his little adventure with Huck mm-hmm. um to break down uh and and so like yeah it's, it's this massive build of all these other, you know, all these elements mm-hmm. that come together in this, in this very, it's, it's a pretty quick denouement yeah. <laughs> at the it's, end. It's like, it's really like the last, the last, he calls it chapter the last, but it's like the last page and a half is really when you figure out, oh, you know, his, your dad is dead. Jim was free the whole time. You know, all those bombs are dropped in the very end of the book. Remind me, do we find out anything about Jim's family? At the end, I, and those and that that's breaks the, my heart absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. Jim's plan in running away isn't it's just to, to run away; it's he to, wants to free his. He wants to free his get enough money to buy his wife and, and, his and his children, and it's left completely ambiguous. Yes, yeah. that's one thing that I I, I it is, yeah. find myself wanting that resolution because so many of these plot lines do get resolved uh-huh. right there at the end, and like you said, it's a little heartbreaking that you don't at least get told. Mm-hmm. This is another thing you were gonna. I was gonna say whenever you asked your favorite parts of the novel was. Um, on top of it just being like funny and obviously there's a lot like comes with like the tone and just the prose and, but, uh, there's some real, I think moments that kind of strike me, um, when I, re- when I read it, like when he talks about, um, in the middle of the night, just sleeping on the raft and he would, uh, he would find himself awake and he just, he would hear just Jim crying and just, he just knew he was thinking about his family and he couldn't find a way to address that with him or talk about that with him and. Just thought, you know, in the midst of it's very, like you said, farcical and humorous. It's, I think it's got a, a ton of heart to it, also, um, in the, especially in the character of Jim, in my mind. Yeah, uh, Mark Twain doesn't hide from the ugliness of the situation mm-hmm. that Huck and Jim are in, mm-hmm. uh, both Huck's abusive family, like, like Pap, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. what that's like, and also the realities that face Jim as a black man. Right. floating south mm-hmm. <laughs> in America in the pre-Civil War era. Um, it, it's not something that uh, he's afraid to engage head on, mm-hmm. right? Like so, so that that kind of trauma is, is very present, um, even as you find yourself laughing out loud at yeah. some of the antics and some of the um, turns of phrase that Jim and, and Huck share together um, mm-hmm. and, and the storytelling that they have. Um. I, I I had mentioned that the the two comment that there's something very fun about yeah. about their presence. Like when they when they come on, it's like a different energy enters. What do you think it is that is that makes them that those sections work so well? Hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that most most of the novel is um just Huck going places and lying and making up identities and stuff. And I think it's interesting when Huck finds himself confronted with that, that very thing that he's been, you know, 
noticing himself doing all along the novel. And um, I think it's it's just very humorous when these two idiots come <laughs> along and they devise all these insane plans. And I think the descriptions, they have, there's a great part about where um, he... Uh, another thing that's great about this book is, like we said, it mentions the Quixote. It shows that obviously Twain is super well-read and references all these Shakespeare. And there's like the Shepherdsons and the... Grangerfords, obviously, is the Montagues and the Capulets, and um, but there's this great. Uh, he does a riff on the "to be or not to be" from Hamlet, all in how he supposedly remembers it, and he's like, "I remember this passage. Yeah. I'll write it down." Yeah, and it's and just a mess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that uh, thematically, it's interesting that when you know Huck is being encountered by this lying and deception, and but it's it's all for fun. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I think. One thing that works there is the satire of the con man. Like there, there's layers of what's being mocked, yeah. right? And 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 being poked about in society. Some of it is going to be class issues mm-hmm. where um, they just want to be treated as upper class, even though they're mm-hmm. clearly not. But mm-hmm. it's also making fun of the upper class and also like the aspirations of the right. lower class. Um, the townspeople. There's some poking fun at how the how the the reason the con works is because of. That people don't want to look stupid and they don't, but they don't mind everyone else looking stupid. Like, we got to all look stupid together. It's the mm-hmm. only reason any of these cons work um, mm-hmm. at all. So, there's some commentary about community yeah. um, that's happening uh, within there. So, so, I think there's some layers of the satire that, that are present that make it um, feel like a rich reading. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like the performative aspects of, of them trying to put on the airs that they can't put on, but mm-hmm. because they they do it kind of becomes accepted that oh they are smart and yeah. and and wise and and crafty mm-hmm. and all these other things when clearly huck is seeing through this and we as readers are seeing through it um but i think twain is is adding in some commentary uh about um hypocrisy and acceptance and all mm-hmm. you know a lot of what's going on and to make these cons function mm-hmm. What do you think? I just was thinking about this in that uh, in the um, the Royal Nunsuch. Whenever he uh, he goes on the stage and he's he's painted all sorts of different colors and naked and behaving like an animal. I, I didn't hadn't even like really thought about this till now. But I, I what do you think he could be um, sort of implying through that? Um, I, I well, I think there's there's the idea of the freak show. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's I was just there. thinking about yeah, um, and. But it's also saying, at the same time, like, there, no one should be finding entertainment in this. And, and the townspeople realize because they feel like they're the ones that are being mocked mm-hmm. uh, through this. But I think Twain may be saying something about, like, the the rise of this kind of freak show mm-hmm. or, or this uh, this view of the other as entertainment, you know, that, yeah. that was happening in America. Um, which Twain was very plugged into what entertainment in America <laughs> was was looking like, and so when the, when the townspeople feel like they're the ones being made fun of, I think Twain would say, "Yeah, <laughs> I'm making fun of you for finding enjoyment or, or thinking you're going to find enjoyment in any of these kinds of, of um, sideshow uh, yeah. elements that were rising in the late 1800s mm-hmm. and early 1900s." I mean, yeah. even uh, I, I want to say it was the New York City Zoo had a pygmy in the zoo until the 1930s or 40s, I think, as one of their their displays. So there's definitely a history uh, that that was going to be continued on after right. Dwayne that I, I think he's he's getting at. That mm-hmm. this shouldn't be entertainment mm-hmm. and you should feel foolish if this is right. something you would find entertaining. I wanted to bring up something that I hadn't recalled because it's been a, you know, we read this at the end of the school year, so a couple months ago. Um, 
But uh, even before I started reading the book, I was, I was chuckling a little bit because the first page says, um, persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot by order of the author. <laughs> See, I can't hear those words without thinking of Woody Harrelson in Cheers. There's one yeah. episode where he's he's doing a local theater production and he is called Authors in Hell and he plays Mark Twain mm-hmm. and he but he's the understudy. So he never actually gets to perform. And so finally everyone's at Cheers is like, "All right, Woody, just just show us the lines you've memorized." Mm-hmm. And so he dresses Mark Twain and he reads that opening monologue. He's like, "This is the start of the play." He gives a little description and he reads that monologue and then he sits down and does nothing and everyone's like looking around and they're mm-hmm. like, uh, "Woody, what what's next?" And he's like, Oh, I just sit here for the rest of the act. <laughs> He's like, oh, the other actors are doing stuff, but there's no one else there. And so he just sits there in oh, cheers yeah. <laughs> on the chair for as yeah. long as he'd be sitting on stage as Mark Twain. Uh, yeah. And so that, that's actually a very famous forward uh, yeah, that you picked out um, because it says, well, don't try and find any meaning, but this book is dripping with meaning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, unavoidable. Um, like we mentioned Huck's moral turn and um, the tension that he very explicitly engages with and acknowledges of Mm -hmm. what is the right thing to do? Is it the lawful Mm -hmm. thing? Is it what the law is telling me and society is telling me? Or is it what I feel is the moral thing in treating Jim like a human being? Yeah. And, and my friend, um, in some ways that actually made me think of, I think it was last year we talked about Antigone, the oldest text that we've engaged with ancient Greek drama. Mm -hmm. And, the 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 um the themes and a lot of the tension in that play is competing duties uh and, and competing moral obligations in that case like obligations to gods obligations to my family obligations to the society yeah. like and there's competing calls to action depending on which one of those antigone is going to honor and i think that's the same kind of tension that we see in in huckleberry finn is he's being pulled in different directions as to what he feels is his obligation and and therefore the moral right thing for him to do. Now, we as readers in the post-Civil War society, we're, reading, we're like, you, you respect yeah, Jim as a person. Like, yeah. there, there's no real debate. Um, but in setting this when it is set and, and having the law be what it is, there becomes um, a, a tension that, that Huckleberry Finn is, is feeling very torn apart about. Right. It makes me... um. I, I like a lot of the, the bits because I think that his journey from, you know, cause it's just ingrained into him as like a kid living in the South in that time that they're property and they're not people. But I think there's some, some good passages that sort of outline his journey from, you know, obviously that point to getting to the point where he says, I'm going to go to hell for Jim, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a good one where, um, you know, you mentioned in the summary there in the, the fog storm and they're kind of going, you know whatever it's kind of it's crazy and then uh jim is sort of losing it a little bit and then huck tries to convince him that it was all a dream and then uh eventually he finds it like it's a really big deal for him to have to figure out a way to um humble himself down and apologize because he said oh, it's to an inferior okay. yeah Let, let's dig a little bit more yeah i think it's I a think really good passage. some really great symbolism that happens here in here so um, this is after they'd been separated on mm-hmm. the raft, right? And they were trying to get reconnected. Mm-hmm. Is that what happened? Yeah. Like Huck had fallen off the raft and they're calling to each other for yeah, hours yeah, yeah. and they can't it was get taken, reconnected. I couldn't really recall all the details. Yeah, I think this is what's going on here. And then Huck finally gets back to the raft and Jim has fallen asleep. So Huck just climbs onto the raft and then taps Jim 
And Jim, like, is freaked out and and tells him, he's like, I can't believe how long we've been separated and everything. And Huck's like, I've been sitting here the whole time. This, what are you talking about? And Jim's like, oh, this must have been a dream. And earlier on, we're told that like, Jim believes in witches and Huck and Tom have played with, you know, toyed with him on yeah. that. And so he's like going in depth on what he describes the whole dream. And he says, if this dream was so vivid, it must be symbolic and it must mean stuff. And, um, and, and he starts to like give descriptions of everything that happened to them and what it might mean for their future or their relationship and, and identifying all the symbolic meaning. And then finally at the end, Huck points to, I think it's a pile of trash yeah, or, or, or some trash that had built up on the raft because of the storm, like debris from the river or something along those lines. He's like, well, what's that? And Jim looks at it and realizes that this means that everything had actually happened. Like all this debris from the storm, mm-hmm. this, this trash means it happens. And Jim says, essentially, well, that trash it means what a person would have to be to to fool a friend to mm-hmm. to make a friend look so foolish as you just made me made me look mm-hmm. and then jim goes into the little shelter they have on the raft yeah. and disappears and ta- and Huck's like i have never felt so low in my life yeah. <laughs> as this moment because he he kind of dehumanized jim for his entertainment right he was right. he was making him as jim said correctly look foolish just to make huck laugh um and uh you know when when Huck's the only one getting the enjoyment out of it, this isn't a friendship at that point. Like, this is not a friend-to-friend relationship, a peer-to-peer relationship. This is um, a, 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 someone who feels themselves superior, making someone else feel inferior, mm-hmm. right? All right, Henry, you found the exact passage. Let's go ahead okay. and read the quote because so um, Mark Twain's going to say it better than my summary just did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so it, this is just right after he says um, – this is in Jim's, obviously, dialect. So it's, that truck there is trash. In trash is what people is that put – uh, puts dirt on did a hand or er, er, their friends and makes them ashamed. So it's you know it's the spelling is crazy. It's hard to <laughs> it's hard, hard to, to read. read it out loud. Yeah. Um, then he got up slow and walked to the wigwam and went in there without saying anything but that. But that was enough. It made me feel so mean I could almost kiss his foot to get him to take it back. It was fifteen minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to a slave. Uh, but I done it and I weren't ever sorry for it afterward neither. I didn't do him no more mean tricks, and I wouldn't have done it that one if I didn't know it made him feel that way. Yeah. And um, in looking – we were just trying to find this this passage. Um, and in doing that, I came across this quote from Mark Twain about this where he says, Huckleberry Finn is a book of mine where a sound heart and a deformed conscience come into collision and conscience suffers defeat. And he's saying that – the conscious is deformed because of society. Like mm-hmm. Hug- Huckleberry Finn had been trained, raised up with a deformed conscience to mm-hmm. view slavery as the right and just norm of the land. Mm-hmm. Like this is the status quo that should exist. And he says, that's the ill-formed conscience. And it's going to come across or, or come into conflict with um, a sound heart or, right. you know, true morality mm-hmm. um, and ethics. Put that really well. It's a great. It's a great turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think that is the heart of the um, the transformation that we see with Huck is mm-hmm. is when he says, "Well, I guess I'm going to go to hell uh, mm-hmm. for doing yeah. the right thing," because he he knows what is the right thing, even if he can't like put into words yeah. why it's the right thing, why this was the religious right thing to do, yeah. the cultural right thing, you know, the um, the human right thing to do. He can't he can't find the words for it, and he just accepts. Well, I'm going to go to hell <laughs> for yeah. breaking the law, mm-hmm. um, and and pursue freeing Jim. Yeah, and talking about like the the depths of meaning, um, this the passage when um, the steamboat runs over the raft, like yeah. inspired this whole uh, 
well, it's a famous book of literary analysis called Machine in the Garden, The Machine in the Garden, about how technology changed the stories that were being told. And it points to that moment as like technology entering this almost Eden-esque world that oh, yeah. Huck and oh, Jim yeah. had built um, of peace that was separate from all the strains of culture, um, mm-hmm. you know, all the slavery and, you know, uh, everything. I want to come back to that. And, and Huck trying to be civilized, like he found what was actually a, a more pure and Edenic setting mm-hmm. on the raft, but it's going to get run over <laughs> by, by the steamboat and destroyed. And um, that, this idea of technology made by man, like disrupting uh, pure nature is going to become a very common theme. It's going to become more and more pervasive and invasive in the way technology is going to be infecting not just nature, but then it's going to move into affecting human humans, like their bodies. We get the rise of like cyborg literature in the in the 1920s and 30s, and then it's going to be um, infecting the human mind. Uh, like now, we see it more about technology infecting the human mind, even than the idea of it infecting the environment around us or our or our bodies themselves, and. Um, Huckleberry Finn is is cited as one of those like early explorations of technology and now changing um, or, or introducing one of the major themes that's going to be driving the literature since then, not just in terms of like, oh, the complexity of prejudice and the complexity of race relations and the complexity of the, the moral center of, of Huckleberry Finn, but mm-hmm. like it, just this little side moment of the steamboat yeah. is pretty significant in American literary mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. I want to – or sorry. What I wanted to say about – you were talking about the Edenic setting and how idyllic it was. And um, I recall in the Outsiders episode, Todd was talking about reading The Outsiders and he said it just back in middle school or whatever it was, if he just wanted to go out and buy a pack after reading The Outsiders and sort of, I guess, a little bit similar. But while I was reading this and the opening – really the first act is just like these – great descriptions of just being in nature and running around catching fish and eating it and just having a good time i said i just want to run away and just yeah. live in the woods well that's um it's citing hemingway yeah. right uh like uh one of the main characters in a lot of short stories is nick adams who mm-hmm. in order to like recover from the trauma of war and violence which is now much more machine violence right yeah. that's happening in the war he goes out camping (laughs) but but he and often it's like past the borders of where civilization has been is where Mm -hmm. he has to go to fix himself from Mm -hmm. the trauma of civilization uh and i I, again like Hemingway says cites twain is one of the great influences on american literature and you see i think that in in a lot of Hemingway stories Mm -hmm. um like this idea of just getting it away from all but becoming a better person by separating right. yourself <laughs> and yeah. from, from those calls. It, in some ways it's a very um, also, uh, you know, pre twain, but, but like transcendentalist, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Walden and yeah. Getting, getting to nature and away from the, uh, the uh, formative strains of civilization yeah. where we're, we have, we have, we need to conform to certain yeah, the um, roles and, and Whosoever obligations. Yeah. over must be a man must be a nonconformist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's from uh, Self-Reliance, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I I think you're right in identifying that as um, – I, I guess when you think about Huckleberry Finn, so much of it becomes about the Huck and Jim relationship. But I think yeah. that there's other depths that can be explored mm-hmm. within it. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- if you were going to define Huckleberry Finn's character, 
what is it that makes him so fascinating that there have been almost 20 films adapted or inspired by this story and uh, you know other writers keep trying to carry on the story and all mm-hmm. these other things what is it about Huckleberry Finn well I like I'll never be able to put it as well as Twain but he said on um, the what he said the deformed conscience and the sound <laughs> heart um, but I like that he's um, so I feel like in his personal beliefs he's very stubborn and I think in his ideas of who he wants to be in and like even at a young age I don't know I think he's 11 right or hey, 11 you, or so he's not a teenager yet yeah, yeah. Um, but even you know in the opening it's it's I like it that it's all told from his perspective because in the opening paragraphs he's able to lay out why he's like I don't do religion I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this and these are my reasons and blah blah and he's very confident in himself or at least sure that this is the way he wants things to be and in his all his critiques of society from you know such a low age, um, I think that there's a lot of interest in someone who's very sure of themselves, mm-hmm. and also I obviously that his um, change in character is you know it's it's the timeless story yeah you know it's the hero's journey it's, but, well it's the coming of age right, right yeah in, in this case mm-hmm. um, because he is so young and but in that kind of liminal space between childhood and adulthood right mm-hmm. and, you know he's he's entering full adolescence and becoming mm-hmm. uh you know still very much becoming not is something mm-hmm. you know he hasn't become something he is becoming something and and to see that transformation happening on this page like you said he's very sure of himself but yeah. at the same time he's also very self-reflective and questioning yeah um and it's more when he gets challenged by any outside force that he digs in but when he's by himself on the river like this is a pretty philosophical text. Yeah, it is. <laughs> in, in a lot of uh, passages. Um, I like that um, sort of – so, right, they they don't want to be civilized because I think his notion or his understanding of civilized requires a little bit like more nuance to dig into because from what his understanding would be civilized people, all he's ever known was like the slaveholding Miss Watson and then the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons just killing each other without reason. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, the towns just – and all the stuff that goes on there and the drunks getting shot and the riots and the lynch mobs and all this just tomfoolery that goes around around him. And I, I like the symbol of the river and just – on the river, it's like – seems like there's the most idyllic passages just flowing along. And mm-hmm. uh, But every time they go on shore, it's just – civilization is just – it's just full of corrupt people doing stupid things. And I think yeah. that – yeah, I don't know. Well, I – it is full the civilized. Of the people that didn't want to be civilized are more civilized than the civilized yeah. people. I just did yeah. Hypocrisy marks. is a yeah. is, is a major aspect of this. But there are also good people that they encounter. So yeah. Yeah. that woman that she just know, lets him know she yeah. she sees right through his girl costume at uh-huh. the beginning. And, like, she does a couple th- moves to confirm it, which I always thought was really smart mm. <laughs> when I was reading it. Um, but she kind of says, I know you're not a girl. But you must have a reason that you're pretending to be a girl, so let me tell you how to act like a girl. Because you have your own reasons that you feel the need to be trying to do this deception. And you're mm-hmm. not very good at it. And I think it's probably for your safety. So right. let me tell you how you should act like a girl. So, like, and even as, like, she becomes a threat and represents a threat to Jim and Huck hiding out on that island. Because she's going to be telling her husband, you know, to go on the island. Mm-hmm. She, um, she, she sees a young boy trying to lie to her and just immediately says, this is a kid that needs help. Not mm-hmm. why are you lying to me? What, what an awful boy you must be. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we throughout 
the text where you where yes you can see so much about the negative aspects of of the hypocritical nature of civilization and these these people who should be role models as adults are just time and time again yeah. negative influences on Huck if he would let them be but he doesn't because he resists that there are also these snippets or snapshots of of goodness and kindness mm-hmm. yeah definitely what about Jim what how would you describe Jim well I think obviously he gets I love him because he's just I mean just through the society that he's in is just put on such an unfortunate or is put within such an unfortunate situation for himself um, and it's obviously everyone roots for the underdog, but he has, I think he really, besides Huck's moral turn throughout the novel, I think that, like I was saying earlier, the parts that really struck me the most were, and it, it's not like mentioned very frequently or anything. It's just, I think a couple of times, but just Jim talking about how he just wants to save his family and love him. And I think there's something very beautiful in just the relationship of this old worn down African-American man. And then this young white boy just coming together and becoming best buds along the river. Um, and there's something very endearing about that also. Um, but I just, I, I love Jim because, you know, he's just a sweetheart. And he talks about, you know, uh, I don't ever know what I was going to do if I didn't see you again, Huck. And all these just very loving quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he's just, you know, he's a sweetheart. Um, and... Huck needs a father figure. Yeah. <laughs> Desperately. Because uh, Pap, not cutting it as a father yeah. figure. And the other adults that try and behave maternally or paternally to him, he resists their mm-hmm. um, attempts to civilize him. And there's something about Jim. Yeah, like I guess Huck and Jim need each other. Yeah. <laughs> is, is a lot of it. Um, and his absolute loyalty to mm-hmm. this kid. <laughs> right it's it's astounding mm-hmm. um and yet it never feels unreal or or unearned in how mm-hmm. the narrative has been laid out for us that mm-hmm. they would be this loyal to each other as quickly as they become that loyal to each other yeah yeah totally well do you have any final thoughts on huckleberry finn um none that i have not tried to or none that are coming to mind right now none that i've <laughs> not been previously talked about so well, I will just say, there's a reason this is one of the classics, and yeah. when people debate what is the great American novel, Huckleberry Finn is going to be tossed in on the pile. It might not yeah. be the one that people pick, but it's kind of like, you have to acknowledge it. Yeah, as, for sure. As its place in the in the canon of American literature. And as tricky or as problematic as the idea of canon is, mm-hmm. or the people who kind of got a pass straight into the canon has been, and the voices that have been kind of ignored from being added to the canon, I think even as we do the necessary work to add more voices to the canon, besides just the dead white men, Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn are still going to be part of the canon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's never going to change. Yeah. Uh, because there's a quality to this that makes it stand out. It's just very entertaining to read. And also, like, just I love the text even more, just talking about it for an hour, just trying to unpack it so much beneath the surface to talk about. And just even with if you didn't, like, want a super philosophical text to read, it's just a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's just a good time. You can have the fun adventure story yeah. of um, these two guys flowing down the Mississippi mm-hmm. River mm-hmm. <laughs> on the raft in the 18, probably 1840s. I'm guessing is it, I, I don't think it ever says an actual year, does it? Yeah, or it says um, the very front of the book before the book starts. It says it's published in 84, correct? Yeah, that's when it was. It says um, some 40 or 50 years ago. So yeah, yeah. All right. 
that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 99, when we talked about Catcher in the Rye, another American lit classic. Or episode number 175, when we talked about The Yellow Wallpaper, an American short story classic. Or episode number 215, when we talked about Don Quixote, which is referenced in this text, and yeah. it also just... Influential, I think, yeah. in the text also. <laughs> Talking about works that set the course of literature yeah. coming after. Don Quixote is in that discussion, too. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute on our Facebook fan page. It's facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Silent. How long have you gone with, uh, like, ever gone, and then you notice it wasn't recording? Never. I think we always double check. Yeah, if that. Why?